Carl Menninger was an American psychiatrist who wrote the book, Whatever Became of Sin. And in this book, Whatever Became of Sin, Menninger tells the story of how on a sunny September day in 1972, a stern man dressed formally was seen standing on the corner of a street in downtown Chicago. And as pedestrians hurried past him, some of them on their way to work or to a lunch appointment, the man would solemnly lift his hand and point to the person nearest to him and said in a very loud voice, Guilty! And then he would lower his hand. And after a few moments had passed, he would repeat the same gesture. He would raise his hand and point to the next person who is passing and shouted, Guilty! Those who passed by were startled, shocked by this sight. They found it off-putting. They would look at each other. They would look away. They would look at him hurriedly and continued on their way. One of the times when he lifted his hand and pointed to a man and said, Guilty. The man was so shocked, he turned to another one and said, How did he know? See, Menninger realized that as men, human beings, we are guilty, and guilty particularly of sin. In this book, Menninger, who is no Christian, was concerned about the disappearance of the vocabulary of sin from our conversation. And over 40 years later, we've come to a point in history where the biblical idea of sin is almost unknown. People use the term sin in rather quaint ways, referring to an exotic brand of ice cream as sinfully delicious. There is a redefinition, a redefining of sin, not only as guilty pleasure or a Freudian slip, but a view of sin as a mental disease. We look at people who commit horrific crimes as somehow sick rather than guilty of sin. Isaiah the prophet deals with this matter of sin. In fact, throughout the Bible, this is a pregnant theme. And in chapter 1 of Isaiah, this is a central issue that God has with his people. And the prophet Isaiah made this very clear in the first chapter. That God's accusation of his people is precisely because of sin. It's not my intention this evening to do a close exegesis of or commentary upon the text of Isaiah 1, but merely to deal with this overarching theme 
of sin. You will notice that in Isaiah chapter 1 verses 1 to 9, there is a divine accusation of sin. Then there is in verses 10 to 20, an exhortation to repentance, not to empty rituals. And then the promise of the purification of his people in 21 to 33, in 31, in 20, verses 21 to 31, in very broad terms. But what I want to do is to have a running discussion of this problem that confronts us, the problem of sin. I want to look at the origin of sin and the nature of sin and the consequences of sin and finally the remedy for sin. Scripture teaches that sin began in the angelic order prior to the creation. That God created before he made man the angelic host and they were created good. But it is in this order, this angelic order that sin began. You get ideas of this, for example, in the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 14, 12 to 14, where Isaiah is describing the fall of the king of Babylon, that there was a coming day when the Babylonian kingdom would fall, the king would fall. But it is interesting how the writer, Isaiah, couches the fall of the king of Babylon in terms of the fall of Lucifer, Satan as we now know him. How art thou fallen from heaven, O day star of the morning? How art thou cut down in the ground that didst lay low the nations? And thou saidst in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of congregation in the uttermost part of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud, and I will make myself like the most high. It is indeed a rebuke, an oracle against the king of Babylon. But there it gives us indication that Satan himself lifted up himself, seeking to dethrone God, and was cast down. He overreached for the throne of God. The same idea is to be found in Ezekiel 28. That it is with the fall of Lucifer, that bright one, that sin became a reality. And in the text of Genesis chapter 3, we see not now sin in the angelic order, but sin in the world. That Adam and Eve were created and placed in an idyllic, perfect setting of the Garden of Eden. It is in this perfect environment of Eden that man sinned. And it reminds us that sin occurred under the best conditions possible and shows you how irrational and evil sin is it would have been one thing if God were doing terrible things to Adam and Eve if he was being a tyrant to them if he was starving them if he was doing and allowing a lot of evil things to fall upon them and they rebelled against him because he was a tyrant or because he was not good but this is the contrary. It is against all goodness and all love and all provision that Adam and Eve turned away from God. And you know the story there in Genesis 3. 
how Satan, using the serpent, tempted them to sin. And Satan introduced the question, has God said you should not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden? And that question, you see, is aimed at suggesting that God is not good, that God is limiting them, that God is indeed denying them the happiness and the fulfillment that they deserve. They were told to eat of all the trees in the garden but one. You see, it would have been another thing if they were told to eat of only one tree. But they were told to eat of all of the fruit in the garden except one. And Satan comes along and says, has God said that you should not eat? In fact, it's a suggestion that God is unkind, that he's denying them what is best for them. You see, all sin arises from the suspicion that God is denying us happiness, that God is not good. When Eve recited God's commandment and recited it inaccurately, don't have time to develop that, Satan simply says, you shall not die. He's the father of lies. In fact, Satan tells him that you shall become like gods, knowing good and evil. And because of this temptation to become like God, that is to acquire wisdom independently, to determine what is right without reference to God, they acted, they sinned. We need to understand that Adam's sin in the garden was not a mistake. He knew what he was doing. He sinned with his eyes wide open. He sought independence from God to determine what was right or wrong on the basis of self. All sin is a desire for independence from God. Sin began then in the heavenly host and was introduced into the garden by Satan himself. But what must we think of the nature of sin? There are many things that we might conclude about sin itself. The sin with which the generation of Isaiah confronted and which we now confront. Probably we must first of all recognize that sin is at heart a spiritual condition. Various attempts have been made by philosophers and theologians to define sin. Sometimes sin is considered in terms of its symptoms like disruption and alienation and depression and immorality. And certainly all of these are the product of sin. There is an alienation from one another and from God because of sin. But sin is greater than its symptoms. The new, new Orthodox German theologian, theologian Scaramacher says that sin is a lack of God consciousness. It is to live one's life without thinking about God. Augustine, the great church father, viewed sin as privation, the lack of something. Darkness is 
the lack of light. And sin, Augustine would argue, is the absence of good. That may be true. But sin is more than privation. It is a positive act. Here in Isaiah, the prophet seeks to unpack this notion of sin by various concepts. One of the terms that he uses to define sin is found here in verse 4. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evil doers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backwards. Several concepts used for God. Let me point out just a few. He defines sin as hata. In verse 4, alas, a sinful nation. The term here, sin or sinful, hata, means to deviate from the right way. We normally view it as missing the mark. So when David says, against thee only have I sinned, it means that he had missed the mark, he had fallen short of the purpose for which God had made him. He had missed the goal for which he should aim. And these people, the prophet says, are a sinful nation. They had missed God's goal. They had missed the mark to live for the glory of God. Sin is missing the mark. It's falling short of the glory of God. The prophet uses another term for sin. A people laden. Laden. Weighed down, he says, with Iniquity. You see, sin is not only missing the mark. Sin is iniquity. And here we have the term awan. Awan literally means to bend or a curve. To make crooked or to distort. Sin is iniquity. It is distortion. It is perversion. Alas, a sinful nation. A nation who has missed the mark and fallen short of the glory of God. A people laid down with iniquity, that is with corruption and perversion. David would cry, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, from my perversion. Sin is also viewed as Pessa. And Pessa is rebellion. You see the same idea, even though the term used here in verse 2, he says, and they have rebelled against me. In verse 5, why should you be stricken again? You revolt more and more. You see, sin is revolting. It's rebellion. The term Sarah is used for rebellion in verse 5. But it means to be disobedient. It means... To rebel or to rise up against a rightful authority. 
the authority of God. It is disobedience. There are other concepts that is used for sin like avar, which is to transgress. It is to cross over a boundary. You see, in the Ten Commandments, you have the Lord calling us to love the Lord. You shall have no other gods beside me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image. You shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. These are specific commands laid down by God. Honor your mother and your father. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal or bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. All of these thou shalt not are God's command. And sin is avar. It is transgression. It is crossing over a boundary. It is to enter into forbidden territory. You see, for the New Testament, then sin is to miss the mark. The term used so often in the New Testament is amartia. We miss the mark. The New Testament used terms like adikia or unrighteousness. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. The term anomia means lawlessness against the law. And when you put all of this together, sin is a lack of conformity or transgression of the law of God. It is an evil against God. It's fundamental opposition and rebellion against God rooted in hatred of God and excessive love of self. It is a spiritual condition. It's a condition of the heart. The reason that the people of Judah had turned away from God, it is because they did not love God, but they loved themselves. Their problem was moral and spiritual. But we need to know that this problem of sin, not only is it a spiritual condition, but it is a universal condition. We cannot think that sin is only to be viewed upon as the failings of a few. You see, Adam was made in the image of God, and Adam was not a private citizen. He was a public servant who represented all of us. He was the head of humanity. And his sin became our sin. His sin in the garden affected the whole human race. And that's what we mean by original sin. For by original sin, we are signaling that Adam's first sin was imputed to us. In fact, we receive from Adam not only the guilt of sin, but the corruption of sin. Because we were in Adam. He was our federal head or representative. And thus, to be or not to be a sinner was not a choice given to us. We are born in sin and shaped in iniquity. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. When he was pronounced guilty, we were all pronounced guilty in him. 
The Apostle Paul teaches us that sin is not only a spiritual condition, but a universal condition. You see something of this in Romans 5, 12 to 14. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is a figure of him that was to come. Paul is, of course, in this section, drawing a comparison between Adam and Christ, the two heads of humanity. And he tells us that from the one man, sin has come into the world. Just like from the one man, righteousness has come, that is Christ. He makes it clear that Adam's sin affected all of his descendants. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, that is, sin entered the world. Adam's sin spread to all of us. And the writer says, not only did Adam's sin, but the consequence of his sin, death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And when he says, for that all have sinned, he is not now saying that we have received death because we have all personally sinned, but we have all sinned in Adam. That's the notion there, that we have received.